Part One, Chapter Nineteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. At the very time when in the Rostovs' ballroom they were dancing the sixth Anglaise, and the musicians from weariness were beginning to play out of tune, and the tired servants and cooks were preparing for the supper, Count Bezukhoi received his sixth stroke of apoplexy. The doctors declared that there was not the slightest hope of his rallying from it. The form of confession and communion was administered to the dying man, and preparations were making for extreme unction, while the mansion was filled with the bustle and expectation usual in such circumstances. Outside the house, around the doors, hidden by the throngs of carriages, gathered the undertakers, hoping to reap a rich harvest from the Count's obsequies. The military governor of Moscow, who had been assiduous in sending his adjutant to inquire for the count, this evening came himself to bid farewell to the famous grandee of Catherine's time. The magnificent reception-room was crowded. All stood deferentially, when the governor, who had been closeted for half an hour with the sick man, came out, slightly bowing in reply to the salutations, and endeavouring to pass as rapidly as possible by the doctors, priests, and relatives who fixed their eyes upon him. Prince Vasily, grown a trifle thinner and paler under the strain, accompanied the military governor, and was repeating something in an undertone. Having seen the distinguished caller to the door, Prince Vasily sat down alone in the hall, threw one leg over the other, resting his elbow on his knee, and covering his eyes with his hand. Having sat that way for some little time, he got up and with hasty, irregular steps, looking around with startled eyes, he passed through the long corridor that led to the rear portion of the house, to the room occupied by the oldest of the three princesses. The visitors in the dimly lighted reception room talked among themselves in low whispers, and relapsed into silence, looking with eyes full of curiosity or expectation when the door that led to the death chamber opened to let any one pass in or out. The limit of his life, said a little old man, a priest, to a lady sitting near him, and listening earnestly. The limit is fixed. He will not live beyond it. "'It seems to me it is late for extreme unction, is it not?' asked the lady, adding the name of the priest. She affected to be unenlightened on this point. "'It is a great mystery, gentle lady,' replied the priest, passing his hand over his bald forehead, on which still lay a few carefully brushed locks of grayish hair. "'Who is that?' "'The governor of Moscow?' someone asked at the other end of the room. "'What a young-looking man! "'But he's seventy years old. "'They say, don't they, that the Count doesn't recognize anyone any longer. "'Are they going to give him extreme unction?' "'All I know is, he's had seven strokes.' "'The second niece just came out of the sick-chamber with weeping eyes "'and sat down by Dr. Lorraine, "'who had assumed a graceful position under the portrait of the Empress Catherine,' and sat with his elbow resting on the table. "'Beautiful weather, princess, and this being in Moscow is like being in the country,' said the doctor in French. "'It is, indeed,' said the princess with a sigh. "'Can he have a drink?' Lorraine pondered a moment. "'Has he taken his medicine?' "'Yes.' "'Take a glass of boiled water, and add a pinch,' he indicated with his slender fingers what he meant by a pinch, "'of cream of tartar.' I never heard of a case where a man survived more than a third stroke, 
said a German doctor to an adjutant. "'What a constitution the man must have had,' said the adjutant. "'And who will get all his wealth?' he added in a whisper. "'Someone will be found to take it,' replied the German with a smile. Again they all looked at the door. It opened to let the young princess pass with the drink which Lorraine had suggested for the sick man. The German doctor went over to Lorraine. "'Do you think he will last till tomorrow morning?' he asked, in atrocious French. Lorraine thrust out his lips and made a motion of severe negation with his fingers in front of his nose. "'Tonight, at latest,' said he in a low voice, with a slight smile of self-satisfaction at being able to understand and express the state of his patient. Then he went out. Meantime, Prince Vasily had opened the door to the princess's apartment. It was almost dark in the room. Two little lamps were burning before the holy pictures, and there was a pleasant odor of incense and flowers. The whole room was furnished with small articles of furniture, chiffoniers, cabinets, and little tables. Behind a screen could be seen the white curtain of a high-post bedstead. A little dog came running out and barking. "'Ah, is it you, mon cousin?' She got up and smoothed her hair, which, as always, was so extraordinarily smooth that one would have thought it made of one piece with her head, and then covered with varnish. "'What is it? What has happened?' she asked. "'You startled me so.' "'Nothing. There is no change.' I only came to have a talk with you, Katish, about business, said the prince, wearily sitting down in the chair from which she had just risen. How warm you are here, he exclaimed. However, sit down there. Let us talk. I thought something must have happened, said the princess, and she took a seat in front of him, with her face hard and stony as usual, and prepared to hear what he had to say. I was trying to get a nap, mon cousin, and I could not. "'Well, my dear,' said Prince Vasily, taking the princess's hand and doubling it over in a way peculiar to himself. It was evident that this, well, my dear, referred to a number of things, which, though unspoken, were understood by both of them. The princess, with her long, thin waist, so disproportionate to the rest of her body, looked at the prince full in the face from her prominent gray eyes. Then she shook her head and— with a sigh, glanced at the holy pictures. This action might have been taken as an expression of grief and resignation, or as an expression of weariness and hope of a speedy respite. Prince Vasily explained this action as an expression of weariness. "'That's the way with me,' said he. "'Do you suppose it's any easier for me? I am as played out as a post-horse. But still, I must have a talk with you, Katish, and a very serious one.' Prince Vasily became silent, and his cheeks began to twitch nervously, first on one side, then on the other, giving his face an unpleasant look, such as it never had when he was in company. His eyes, also, were different from usual. At one moment they gleamed, impudently malicious, at the next a sort of fear lurked in them. The princess, holding the little dog in her dry, thin hands in her lap, scrutinized the prince sharply, but it was plain to see that she did not intend to break the silence by asking any question, even though she sat till morning. "'Do you not see, my dear princess and cousin, Katerina Sebyanovna,' continued Prince Vasily, evidently bringing himself, not without an inward struggle, to attack the subject. "'At such moments as this, we must think about all contingencies. 
We must think about the future, about yourselves. I love all of you as though you were my own children. You know that. The princess gazed at him immovably, betraying no sign of her feelings. In a word, it is necessary, also, to think of my family, continued Prince Vasily, testily giving the stand a push. You know, Katish, that you three Mamontov sisters and my wife are the Count's only direct heirs. I know, I know how hard it is for you to speak and think about such things, and it is no easier for me. But, my dear, I am sixty years old. I must be ready for anything. Do you know that I have had to send for Pierre? The Count pointed directly at his portrait, signifying that he wanted to see him. Prince Vasily looked questioningly at the princess, but he could not make out whether she had comprehended what he had said to her or was simply looking at him. "'I do not cease to pray God for him, mon cousin,' she replied, "'that he will pardon him and grant his noble soul a peaceful passage from this—' "'Yes, of course,' hastily interposed Prince Vasily, rubbing his bald forehead and again testily drawing toward him the table that he had just pushed away. "'But—but—' To make a long story short, this is what I mean. You yourself know that last winter the Count wrote a will by which all his property was left to Pierre, and all the rest of us were left out in the cold. But think how many wills he has made, replied the princess, calmly. Besides, he can't leave. Make Pierre his heir. Pierre is illegitimate. Mon cher, said Prince Vasily, suddenly clutching the table in his excitement, and speaking more rapidly. But supposing a letter has been written to the Emperor, in which the Count begs to have Pierre legitimatized, do you understand that in view of the Count's services his petition would be granted? The Princess smiled that smile of superiority peculiar to people who think they know more about any matter than those with whom they are talking. I will tell you, moreover, pursued Prince Vasily, seizing her by the hand, the letter has been written, but it has not yet been sent, but the Emperor knows about it. The question is merely this, has it been destroyed or not? If not, then, as soon as all is over, Prince Vasily sighed, giving to understand what he meant to convey by the words, all is over, then the Count's papers will be opened, the will and the letter will be handed to the Emperor, and the petition will be undoubtedly granted. Pierre, as the legitimate son, would inherit all. "'But our share?' demanded the princess, smiling ironically, as though all things except this were possible. "'But, my poor Katish, it is as clear as day. Then he will be the only legal heir, and will have the whole, and you will simply get nothing. You ought to know, my dear, whether the will and the letter have been written, or whether they have been destroyed. And if they have been forgotten, then you ought to know where they are, and to find them, so that—' "'That's the last feather,' interrupted the princess, smiling sardonically, and not varying the expression of her eyes. "'I am a woman, and according to your idea, all of us women are stupid. But I know well enough that an illegitimate son cannot inherit. Un she added, with the intention of showing the prince, by this French term, conclusively how inconsistent he was. "'Why can't you understand, Katish?' You are so clever. Why can't you understand that if the Count has written a letter to the Emperor begging him to legitimize his son, of course Pierre will not be Pierre any longer, 
but Count Buzakoy, and then he will inherit the whole according to the will. And if the will and letter are not destroyed, then you will get nothing except the consolation of knowing that you were dutiful a tout ce That is one sure thing. I know that the will has been made, but I know also that it is not good for anything, and it seems to me that you take me for a perfect fool, mon cousin, said the princess, with that expression that women assume when they think they have said something sharp and insulting. My dear Princess Katerina Semyonovna, impatiently reiterated Prince Vasily, I did not come with the intention of having a controversy with you, but to talk with you about your own interests as with a relative, a kind, good, true relative. I tell you for the tenth time that if this letter to the Emperor and the will in Pierre's favor are among the Count's papers, then you, my dear little friend, will not inherit anything, nor your sisters either. If you don't believe me, then ask somebody who does know. I have just been talking with Dmitri Onufryitch, that was the Count's lawyer, and he says the same thing. A change evidently came over the Countess's thoughts. Her thin lips grew white, her eyes remained the same, and her voice when she spoke evidently surprised even herself by the violence of its gusty outburst. "'That would be fine,' said she. "'I have never desired anything, and I would not now.' She brushed the dog from her lap and straightened the folds of her dress. "'Here is gratitude. Here is recognition for all the sacrifices that people have made for him,' cried she. "'Excellent. Very fine. I don't need anything, Prince.' "'Yes, but it is not you alone. You have sisters,' replied Prince Vasily. The princess, however, did not heed him. "'Yes, I have known for a long time, but I had not realized it, that I had nothing to expect in this house except baseness, deception, envy, intrigue, except ingratitude, the blackest ingratitude.' "'Do you know, or do you not know, where the will is?' asked Prince Vasily his cheeks twitching even more than before. Yes, I was stupid. I have always had faith in people, and loved them, and sacrificed myself. But those only are successful who are base and low. I know through whose intrigues this came about. The princess wanted to get up, but the prince detained her by the arm. The princess's face suddenly took on the expression of one who has become soured against the whole human race, she looked angrily at her relative. "'There is still time enough. You must know, my dear Katish, that all this may have been done hastily, in a moment of pique, of illness, and then forgotten. Our duty, my dear, is to correct his mistake, to soothe his last moments, so that he cannot in decency commit this injustice. We must not let him die with the idea that he was making unhappy those who—those who sacrificed everything for him—' interrupted the princess, taking the words out of his mouth. Again she tried to get up, but still the prince would not allow her. And he has never had the sense to perceive it. No, mon cousin, she added with a sigh. I shall yet live to learn that in this world it is idle to expect one's reward, and that in this world there is no such thing as honor or justice. In this world one must be shrewd and wicked. Well, Voyon, calm yourself. I know your good heart. No, I have a heart full of wickedness. I know your heart, repeated the prince. 
I prize your friendship, and I could wish that you had as high an opinion of me. Now calm yourself, and parlons raison. Now is the golden time, a few hours at most, perhaps a few moments. Now tell me all you know about this will, and above all where it is. You must know. He has probably forgotten all about it. Now we must take it and show it to the Count. Probably he has forgotten all about it, and would wish it to be destroyed. You understand that my sole desire is sacredly to carry out his wishes. That is why I came here. I am here only to help him and you. Now I understand all. I know whose intrigues it was. I know, said the princess. That is not the point, my dear heart. It is your protégé, your dear Princess Drubitskaya, Anna Mikhailovna, whom I would not take for my chambermaid, that filthy, vile woman. Let us not lose time, said the prince, in French. Ah, oh, don't speak to me. Last winter she sneaked in here, and she told the Count such vile things, such foul things about all of us, especially about Sophie. I cannot repeat them. So that the Count was taken ill, and for two weeks would not see any of us. It was at that time, I know, that he wrote that nasty, vile paper, but I suppose that it did not mean anything. That is just the point. Why haven't you told me before? In the mosaic portfolio which he keeps under his pillow. Now I know, again went on the princess. Yes, if I have any sins on my soul, the greatest sin is my hatred of that horrid woman— almost cried the princess, her face all convulsed. And why did she sneak in here? But I will tell her my whole mind. That I will. The time will come. End of chapter 19